National Archives podcast series. An overview of newly released files from 1983 with contemporary record specialists Mark Dunton and Simon Dempsey. Mark, why are we've got used to a end of year release? Why is this happening now in the summer? Mm. Yes, uh, Tommy, this is um, part of a transition to um, a 20-year rule. Um, up to uh, up to now. Um, most government records um, have been released under a 30-year rule. They've become open and available to the public after that period. But now, um, what's being phased in, starting this year, is um, a move to a 20-year rule. So this year, we'll see uh, the release of uh, government records from 1983 and 1984. Uh, next year, we'll see uh, the release uh, of those records for 85, 86 and so on over the next 10 years, so that um, by the year 2023, um, we, the 20-year uh, point, will have, it, will, it will have come down to 20 years, um, and we'd be looking at uh, records from the year 2003. So um, it's an exciting development, because it means that uh, records uh, from the uh, Thatcher period of government uh, in the 1980s are going to become available a great deal more quickly than they would have done otherwise, um, which, of course, is a major boon to historians and really anyone interested in um, our modern history. Mark, in December we spoke about the Falklands War when the 1982 files were released. Mm. How did the Falklands factor uh, impact on the general election in 1983? And was, did that uh, help her chances of winning a second term, do you think? Mm. Well, I think, I think you know, that um, most commentators and historians would agree that the Falklands factor... The victory, you know, did definitely um, uh, have a, a good effect in, in terms of um, the sort of poll ratings uh, for uh, the Conservative Party, the Conservative government, and um, and so uh, when it came to that election of uh, June 1983, um, the Conservative Party won that election. It was a landslide victory. They had 144 seats uh, majority. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, in many ways, um, you, you, looking back on this now, people uh, might be tempted to think, ah, you know, so uh, the government has won this fresh mandate. You know, Mrs. Thatcher is emboldened by the, the Falklands. Surely uh, this must have been a period where they, you know, surged into government with a strong sense of sort of purpose and drive and so forth. Uh, but the really interesting thing is that the, the files um, don't really indicate that. Um, these files from 1983, they, they, there are a number of really quite sort of frank comments. Uh, for example, by Bernard Ingham, um, the chief Pre- press secretary, and uh, he uh, he talks about um, a, uh, a rather disastrous um, start to the uh, the second term. Well, Mrs. Thatcher did win a landslide majority of 144 in June '83. Um, do you think her new administration started with a strong sense of mission? Is that evident in the in the files? Well, actually, in many ways, the the files um, don't really show that. Um, it's interesting. I mean, in her um, memoirs in the Downing Street years, um, Mrs. Thatcher does refer to. Um, the Conservative Manifesto of 83 and um, the lack of detail in that manifesto. 
So they came to power, really, with no really detailed programme for the second term. And um, I think it did leave them a bit at the mercy of events. And um, without... I think it's just generally true that there perhaps wasn't a great sense of direction. In fact, um, the files, for example, that we've been released um, concerning economic policy and privatisation show that uh, certainly already in 1982... The, uh, the drive towards privatisation was rather faltering and in many ways uh, the, the government ministers were keen to kind of try and um, crank up a, a sort of resolute spirit about it. But, um, you know, for example, Geoffrey Howe says, we need a hard push now on privatisation back in July 82. And uh, there's a lot of casting around... Uh, asking government ministers for suggestions about parts of government which can be contracted out, because after all, that's what privatisation is all about. It's about um, contracting out um, parts of the public sector to the private sector. And uh, actually, uh, you know, there's a quote from Robert Armstrong, the Cabinet Secretary, in December '82, saying, um, "You know, we understand the Chancellor has been disappointed by the replies he's received so far by departments," and I think this sort of concern about um, a bit of a lack of momentum does carry on uh, into 1983. There's also um, some comments which are very frank uh, by uh, Bernard Ingham, the chief press officer. He talks about a um, disastrous um, beginning to the the second term, problems with um, presentation and um, you know he's uh, he's making quite a few sort of warnings really that, the, that you know and they, they implied there is that the government haven't perhaps got a total grip on, on, uh, on matters you know there's a vote on hanging uh, early on in the second term and um, which um, he, he felt hadn't been handled very well and um, there's quite a lot of concern about you know can the government actually succeed in keeping a lid on public expenditure so it's, it's, it's interesting, really, because I think it shows that the sort of Thatcher revolution didn't just sort of, you know, swing into top gear, you know, even with this sort of landslide majority. Um, it was all rather more uh, gradual, uh, gradualist than, than appears. And were there members of Mrs Thatcher's inner circle who were pushing her to be more radical in the second term? Well, yes, that's right. Um, you know, it's, it's really... Um, certain advisers within the government, maybe more so than the ministers, who, who are really urging the government to take more radical steps, more, more radical action. The, these are the people that political commentators sometimes call the outriders, the people that sort of like to sort of trail um, ideas, you know, uh, they're right on the kind of cutting edge of things. And there's two names in particular, um, Alan Walters, economic, economics advisor, and uh, Ferdinand Mount, who's head of the Number 10 Policy Unit. You can see them in the files. They, there are many memos from them, and often they're um, urging uh, the government, and Mrs Thatcher in particular, you know, to go faster, go further, you know, um, be more bold. One can see this, um, for example, in uh, a comment uh, that Alan Waters makes in July 1983, urging Mrs Thatcher to grasp a painful nettle um, where he says this is the one non-repeatable opportunity to roll back public spending 
If a Tory majority of 144 cannot do it, then there is little hope for Britain. Um, I believe it is possible to galvanise your colleagues to, give, to pursue a real and substantial reduction in public spending. They need a strong lead, and only you can give it. They will follow, with many a grumble, but also with admiration. Um, and there are many other um, such comments, um, comments about um, you know, the need to, uh, to roll back uh, the frontiers of the state and uh, also um, there are some comments on uh, trade union reform. There's a file concerning uh, Norman Tebbit's trade union. The file shows that um, actually Norman Tebbit's trade union reforms were, it kind of confirms that they were quite gradualist. Um, and, for example, there's a comment in that file that, um, you know, we accept that it would be a mistake to legislate at this stage for compulsory strike ballots, which were notably unsuccessful under the 1971 Industrial Relations Act. But uh, the file in question, which uh, it has the reference PREM 19-1061, uh, includes a, um, a paper by Ferdinand Mount head of the policy unit, on trade union reform, and there's a co covering note uh, where Mrs Thatcher has written, uh, please see that the paper is kept wholly confidential. And he, Ferdinand Mount poses the question, what do we want to see in the year 2000? And he answers this by saying, a trade union movement much reduced in size and uh, a trade union movement whose exclusive relationship with the Labour Party is reduced out of all recognition. Uh, so these are very, really rather startling sort of comments, and uh, one can see why Mrs Thatcher w felt it necessary to put that comment about keeping the paper wholly confidential. And again, there's another comment from Ferdinand Mount where he talks about the danger of complacency and timidity creeping into our approach with the reform of trade union law. So um, he's, he's really um, urging that um, the government be more bold on the issue, not be, and in his, he thinks that, um, you know, a, a recent paper from Norman Turbett and the discussion, a recent discussion were extremely defensive and limited. While we're talking about uh, Mrs. Thatcher's advisers, there's a quite an interesting file on special advisers, the appointment of special advisers uh, to the government, mm. uh, which mentions some, some well-known names. Yeah, this is a file um, about um, people who uh, want to serve as, uh, or who have been proposed to serve as special advisors in government, and it's about their sort of appointment procedure and arrangements for their pay. It actually mentions uh, several individuals, you know, some, some of which um, have actually, you know, gone on to serve in the government or found success in other fields, uh, including... Uh, best-selling author Michael Dobbs, personalities such as Oliver Letwin and uh, Michael Portillo. And uh, in particular, you know, one of the, there is a very interesting few pages about um, a proposal for William Hague, now Foreign Secretary, to join as a special advisor at the Treasury. This is back in March 1983. And um, on this uh, proposal, Mrs Thatcher has written... No, this is a gimmick and would be deeply resented by many who have financial and economic experiences. I think it was nothing personal, uh, nothing personal there um, about William Hague. 
But it's just really Mrs. Thatcher being typically forthright, rejecting the idea. Um, and um, uh, Robin Butler puts it um, you know, perhaps a little bit more delicately uh, when he talks about the appointment of someone so young and with so little experience would be an embarrassment to the government and would be uh, resented by uh, more experienced people in the Conservative Research Department. So I think what happens is that there is that Hague isn't actually appointed a special advisor, but he does um, get temporary employment as a, in the Conservative Research Department at Central Office. So, Simon, turning to you for a second, were there any issues uh, where the government had did have some momentum? Yeah, um, coming out of the election, as Mark mentioned, uh, a largely unspecific manifesto, I think even Thatcher has admitted herself, you might think that there wasn't uh, enough going on, but one particular issue which was, which was um, specified in the manifesto and subsequently apparent in the files almost immediately after election is the abolition of the GLC, the Greater London Council, and indeed the Metropolitan County Councils, the MCCs across the country. Um, here we see um, a government... With a, with a purpose. There's discussions within a ministerial group about what they want to do, why they want to close the, the GLC and the MCCs. Uh, the, the reasons being largely financial, and um, you might often hear of this being a, quite a, a personal vendetta against characters like uh, Ken Livingstone, but... The, uh, the general reasons or the, the more obvious reasons specified by the government are those um, relating to finance and, and also um, a less bureaucratic government, both locally and, um, and nationwide. That's not to say that there isn't a reference to um, Ken Livingston, in, in particular over the issue of, uh, whether, of, how, of, whether how, of how quickly... The, um, the GLC could be abolished. They're very keen to have it clo uh, closed by April 1986, which is something they achieved, and particularly because there's an election due at local level in 1985. So they, they really want the, uh, the motions going by then. And as, um, as Ferdinand Mount, again, who, who appears quite vehemently on this subject, specifies, they don't want to give Ken Livingston one year of dangerous liberty before the closure of the GLC. So there is an interesting balance between definite um, ideological and uh, financial reasons behind uh, the closure of the GLC and the MCCs, but also a maybe more um, political and in some way personal element too. Was there any opposition to the plan within government? There was... A degree of opposition, I would say more interestingly, within the Conservative Party and within the Conservative movement. At the top of the Conservative um, part of the GLC, a, gen a gentleman named Alan Greengross, is not certain that the closure of the GLC is the right thing. He feels that London, being the large metropolis it is, needs some kind of representation that would, would be lost. Indeed, he meets with Thatcher, and one of the files shows the, the note of that meeting. And 
Thatcher, while she listens, uh, kind of offers some alternatives, such as a potential minister for London and maybe a grand committee on the in the way a House of Commons grand committee in the way that there is for Scotland and Wales, and even suggests that the Lord Mayor of London is an appropriate post. But as you may know, it's a quite ceremonial position and holds very little power outside of the city. Um, so she's clearly not uh, entirely engaging with Green Greengrocer's ideas, but is to an extent. So, Simon, going into Mrs Thatcher's second term, there was still one... Uh, big battle, at least one big battle on the horizon, that was with the miners. But is there any evidence from the files from 83 that the government was already preparing for that? Yes, there is. I mean, it's generally well known that the government was taking preparation to uh, withstand a miner strike, whether that was through stockpiling of coal and coke or anything else. But um, the file that we have this year released um, shows in detail uh, the pay negotiations that that the government wished to put forward. It shows uh, the detail of how much coal they felt would be uh, enough to withstand a strike, but also it has that personal touch, which, of course, you get from these files, in partic- and that comes through in certain quotes. So, for example, there's a quote from Bernard Ingham, the press officer, chief press officer, in October 1982, saying by that point the government was ready for a strike and was quite keen to stress to his colleagues in the government that, you know, that there was a a strength on on their side of the argument. He goes on later in the period, and actually into 1983, in March 83, to be even more vehement. He says that the miners are not irresistible. Here's a quote um, from Ingham. All they have proved is that they are not prepared to be led by the nose. Events have not, however, challenged the post-war impression of their invincibility, for we have yet to beat a national stoppage. So he's really keen there to explain to his colleagues that the miners aren't unbeatable. It's the fact that there hasn't ever been a strong enough government to take them on, and uh, he's clearly uh, stating that, that this government will be. Mark, turning just for a moment to... Foreign affairs, what do we learn from these files about Mrs Thatcher's relationship with the US President, Ronald Reagan? Yeah, I think what we learn there is that, um, you know, contrary to many people's sort of perceived view of a a very cosy relationship, uh, almost like a love-in, if you like, between President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, um, you know, that is a, a commonly kind of held view. Um, but I think the uh, the reality was, um, you know, at times somewhat different, you know, really uh, much more complex and much more fraught and difficult than um, people might imagine. Um, and, uh, you know, one particular uh, flashpoint, one, one sort of uh, major point of disagreement in 1983, uh, all centred on uh, the island of Grenada. Um, and uh, back in October, in October of that year, uh, October the 19th, the Grenadian Prime Minister, Maurice, Maurice Bishop, uh, had been assassinated. Um, and uh, the US were very worried about um, sort of Cuban and Soviet influence on the island, uh, a, a new sort of... Uh, 
Marxist-style government was uh, set up. And um, I think, you know, the US fears about uh, Soviet and Cuban influence really started to uh, soar. There was actually a... President Reagan uh, had, um, and Britain in fact, had received a request from the Organisation of Eastern Caribbean States um, for a sort of multi, uh, multilateral task force to go into Grenada and uh, to uh, perhaps topple the government there. Um, now, right up to um, the 24th of October, um, the British belief was that um, no military intervention uh, including the United States, is likely to take place. Uh, but all of a sudden, uh, Mrs Thatcher receives um, a message um, from Reagan indicating that he's going to give serious consideration to this request from the OECS. And uh, he then, she then gets a second message confirming that the US wants to uh, respond positively to the request for intervention there. And um, Mrs. Thatcher's written response, which is included in the file, um, Prem 19 stroke 1048, shows her serious doubts about this course of action. And uh, she writes, I cannot conceal that I am deeply, deeply disturbed by your latest comments. You asked for my advice. I have set it out and hope that even at this late stage you will take it into account before events are irrevocable. The Prime Minister then went on to speak to the President on the secure phone line, but um, the President confirmed that US forces uh, were already at zero. And um, so the US goes ahead and takes part in this invasion of Grenada, which of course was a British Commonwealth country. Uh, Mrs Thatcher um, was furious, furious. Um, uh, to her and to Foreign Secretary Geoffrey Howe, it would seem to be a humiliation. Britain had not been consulted. This was uh, sovereign territory, Commonwealth, and um, the files show that um, you know this did cause a very a real cooling in the U.S.-U.K. relations. There's also um, a note of a telephone conversation between Reagan and the Prime Minister. Uh, on the 26th of October, where Reagan expressed how he regretted the embarrassment that had been caused to her uh, and explained that um, worry about leaks had been at the... That's why the Americans had been so secretive. But um, you don't really have to read between the lines to see the, uh, the, the, the coolness uh, in, the, uh, you know, in, in the, that exchange. Um, of course, it is an embarrassing episode because at the very same time that this is happening, there's a lot, great deal of concern in Britain about the sighting of cruise missiles uh, by, by the US. You know, can you trust the US to confer, to consult over the use of nuclear weapons? And that whole argument is made more uh, difficult, if you like, for, for Mrs Thatcher and the government because of this um, event in Grenada. Mark mentioned cruise missiles there, Simon. Um, the sighting of cruise missiles in Greenham Common was a big flashpoint at home as well. It did provoke protest, didn't it? Yes, I'm sure many people would be aware of the protests at Greenham Common, um, largely led by uh, a group of women who um, Margaret Thatcher didn't necessarily treat with the utmost seriousness. In one of the files, she describes them as an eccentricity, which, considering the 
the subject matter is quite an interesting take, I think. Um, but yes, it's, it signified, a, as Mark mentioned, a, a general contention that perhaps the US couldn't be trusted and therefore should we be um, housing cruise missiles in the UK. And these protests as they rose in, uh, in the years leading up to 1983 culminated in, in a certain uh, level of, of, of concern in the government. Uh, John Knott, the defence minister, up until January 83, uh, mentioned in, in, at the end of the previous year that he was concerned about the possible political repercussions that such a placement would have. And um, there is an interesting element there. He never quite gets to the point of saying that they shouldn't be uh, kept in Greenham Common, but he, he is, in, the, uh, in a sense... Um, rattled maybe by the by the positioning of them there. Uh, this all comes at a time of uh, of heightened tension between the east and west, and that comes through in several files that we've seen uh, this year. And it seems to show a certain level of anxiety in the west, perhaps of being behind uh, the Soviet Union in development of weapons. Now, whether this is a genuine anxiety or a, or a kind of propaganda um, exercise to try and increase um, military spending or whatever that might be, or indeed to intimidate the Soviet Union. It's a little bit unclear, but I think it, it comes out often. And um, there, is, uh, there is certainly a, an, a, an element of, of uh, discussion, let's say, about this. This is, I think, perhaps best signified in... Um, a file on the NATO war games, as I suppose we might refer to them as, uh, the Wintex Cymex 83 operation. Now, what that is, is essentially a, uh, a, war, plan a war planning exercise where top officials test out their contingency planning. In many ways, it reads as a role play of, of what high government and uh, press and other institutions might do at that, that stage. It's quite fascinating. It shows a, a level of imagination that perhaps people wouldn't always associate with um, the high civil service. There are fake newspaper headlines. There are, um, there are other kind of potential uh, events playing out. And perhaps most interestingly this year is a, a speech that is written that the Queen would read out at the outbreak of a thermonuclear war. Um, not necessarily the most humorous topic, but... Um, that's where the imagination comes through, I think. Uh, the speech talks of the horrors of war, the madness of war, and there's a really quite touching uh, paragraph uh, where the Queen would have said, and I quote, I've never forgotten the sorrow and pride I felt as my sister and I huddled around the nursery wireless set listening to my father's inspiring words on that fateful day in 1939. Not for a single moment did I imagine that this solemn and awful duty would one day fall to me. It's quite, a, it's quite an emotional touch from a, a top official to, to give, a, give the Queen such a, a personal uh, recollection. And the speech goes on to describe what... To, to try and offer some comfort. I think that's what it's trying to do. Some comfort to a country embarking on a nuclear war. There's little you could do, I suppose. <clears throat> she ends with the following lines... My message to you, therefore, is simple. Help those who cannot help themselves. Give comfort to the lonely and the homeless. And let your family become the focus of hope and life to those who need it.
As we strive together to fight off the new evil, let us pray for our country and men of goodwill, wherever they may be. God bless you all. That's fascinating, Simon. And is that, was that something that the Queen would have seen, or was this written on her behalf by... No, of course, this is a completely imagined um, speech, and it would have been written maybe by an official in the government in a role-playing facility. And um, fortunately enough for those involved, it ended in a peace negotiation, and thankfully all-out nuclear war was was staved off, even in the imagined world of uh, Wintech Cymex. So, Simon, it seems that in conclusion... 1983 was a difficult year for Britain's relationship with the world. Yes, it does seem to it does seem to be so. Not not only in the kind of uh, east-west uh, dichotomy, but also in terms of Britain's relationship with its greatest ally, the U.S. Um, after Grenada, it really seems like there's a there could, there could potentially be a, a broken relationship in some way, but. Um, Margaret Thatcher is really keen to ensure that it's not the case. And um, at the end of a cabinet meeting, following their discussion about Grenada, she says, um, Britain's friendship with the United States must on no account be jeopardised. So this is a re- really clear uh, decision to want to keep, keep the status quo. And indeed, this is also apparent in, in other files. Um, 1983... Uh, the end of 1983 sees this terrible, terrible bombing of a uh, U.S. Marine base in in Beirut, and uh, it's a moment of high tension and a difficult moment for the for the president. And uh, it's quite clear that the lines of communication between uh, Thatcher and Reagan are still open. She writes to Reagan that um, that he should should hold back from any kind of retaliation. Um, but also says, you face a difficult decision and I can well understand all the pressures on you to take action. In such circumstances, leaders find themselves in a lonely position and I want you to have my frank views as someone who's been in a similar situation. Really clear that that almost personal relationship between them is still going despite all the tensions throughout the year. So, Mark, did Mrs. Thatcher fare any better on the home front? What was the general situation at the end of 1983? Well, um, I think 1983 can be summed up as a, a bit of a hiatus year, really, for um, the Thatcher administration. Um, you know, despite that sort of big landslide victory in uh, June, the government at this time, the files sort of show them sort of grappling with how to take privatisation forward. You know, they're sort of limbering up on that front. Um, similar comments apply to, you know, trade union reform. You know, it's sort of, um, a, you know, proceeding in a sort of um, cautious way, really. Perhaps when, when one sees Mrs. Thatcher's uh, comments in the margin, uh, the marginalia uh, in the Prime Minister's files, uh, you know, perhaps one can detect a certain amount of frustration and. Uh, and sort of uh, anger, perhaps, that, um, you know, thing, uh, with perhaps the sort of um, the pace of change isn't quite as she'd like it or just a bit of uh, frustration showing itself. I mean, one example of the, these sort of angry comments um, is her reaction to a paper um, that is um, proposed by um, Geoffrey Howe, who's sort of newly appointed, really, as Foreign Secretary... 
and um, it's all to do with nuclear proliferation, really. But the, the um, Mrs. Thatcher's reaction is, um, we just can't circulate this paper. It is dreadful. If it came to us from a friendly power, I should tear it apart and have treat any further advice from that source somewhat disdainfully. Now, of course, Geoffrey Howe doesn't uh, actually get to see these furious comments. Uh, he, he receives a rather politer version um, but it's still, you know, the politer version drawn up by her private secretary still makes it clear Mrs. Thatcher has fundamental objections to the uh, policies that he is proposing. And there are also, um, talking about sort of angry comments, there's also um, Mrs. Thatcher's reaction to a memo from uh, newly, uh, you know, newly appointed uh, Chancellor Nigel Lawson. In, in, this is a memo dating from 25th of July, 1983, and uh, Nigel Lawson writes uh, a paper about competition and privatisation. And um, Mrs. Thatcher's comments, again, are very, very strong. You know, she says, uh, uh, this is not, um, she says, uh, this is not a matter to be invoked by minute. And, um, you know, she says um, to an advisor, she writes, Mike, I will have to have a word with the Chancellor. This is the third message from him that has given me cause for concern. Um, so, you know, I think there is perhaps some sort of feeling of uh, frustration there with Mrs. Thatcher. Um, there's still a lot of things to play out, of course, and um, it, it's really great that um, we won't have that long to wait for the next instalment uh, in this unfolding chapter, this unfolding history of the 1980s, because it won't be that long before the files for 1984 are released and that's something to look forward to this podcast was recorded on the 25th of july 2013 at the national archives in kew this podcast is copyright the national archives all rights reserved <laughs>